one of the things I enjoy teaching is the Old Testament, and really that's because when I was at master's for uh, my bachelor's degree, um, just the Old Testament classes I had there really opened my eyes, and I felt like I had never read the Bible at all, and that's, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, it was just very clear from the text, and I was like, man, how have I never seen this before? And so I love the chance to go back to go back to the Old Testament. So there's a couple words before we kind of get going. Tonight's going to be introduction. Um, I want to get through that first page. Why study Old, Tes- uh, Old Testament prophecy? How do we study Old Testament prophecy? Why study Joel? If we can get into the background and literary context and finish that, that would be a miracle. I don't think that's going to happen, but, but we'll see. Um, but I really want this class to really be kind of like a classroom teaching setting, okay? So there's no such thing as a dumb question. Like, if you're like, hey, I don't know what you're talking about, just say something. Sometimes I'll talk really fast. Um, that's just because my professors at Masters, they talk really fast. And it's just like, okay. So I want to get through a lot of material, and so I tend to talk fast. If there's anything you're unclear about, you want to go back to, I've never heard that before, ask a question. If you just want to contribute something, hey, what about this? Let's talk about it. You know, more conversational classroom setting, okay? Like Romans said in the announcements, Caleb's preaching through Joel. I'm not preaching through Joel. I'm kind of teaching through Joel, okay? I want to be very clear. I've got a lot of content. I get really excited about this stuff. Um, But if at any point you want to jump in, any questions, please, please ask. So uh, that's really what I'm I'm hoping for. We're all learning uh, together here. And this is great because I don't have like an eight-week, like, time limit. Like with Old Testament, too, they were like, all right, we want you to teach Chronicles all the way to the end of the Old Testament in 12 weeks. I was like, okay. I would love to do that, but that's also going to pain my soul to do that. <laughs> and so I was like, can I have 13 weeks? And so it was just like I added another week. But even then, like when, especially when I came to the Minor Prophets, I felt like I just didn't give it nearly as much time as I wanted. I had to rush through. I mean, if you have two weeks for 12 books, you're just not going to do some of those books justice. And so when you know, the pastors were thinking, hey, let, something in the summer you know, we can do on weekday nights or something like that, what do you want to do? I was like, let's do a Minor Prophet. Generally speaking, how many of you think you have mastered the book of Joel? I haven't, okay? Like, this is a book that we don't really know all that well. Maybe the best passage you know about Joel actually isn't even in Joel. It's in Acts 2 when Peter's sermon at Pentecost quotes the book of Joel, right? It's just not a book that we know super well, and so I'm really excited. We don't have a time limit. We can go as fast as we want. We can go as slow as we want. I'm thinking maybe 8 to 10 weeks. If it goes faster, if it goes slower, we're just going to do another book. Like, I really want to do the book of Micah, okay? Because same thing. How many of you think you've mastered the book of Micah? Not me either, okay? Um, and so I'm really excited. We'll see where this goes, how long it takes. should be a lot of fun. I'm aiming to land this plane each night around 7.30, okay? So if you can show up, Lori and I were just talking, it's like, we have to wait like five, ten minutes because people show up late. It's just the Crossway Bakersfield thing. It's like, I'm going to try and start as soon as possible at 6.30, okay? So I might wait a couple minutes, but I really want to hit the ground run at 6.30, okay? So I might give you a couple minutes of grace, but I really want to stop at 7.30, okay? So, because I know typically after someone's been talking for 45 minutes, you just start to, to fade out. You probably just come from, you had a good dinner, you're tired, it's bedtime. So I'm going to try and land the plane at, at 7.30. Um, so notes there, I already mentioned this to some of you guys coming in. There's a full note packet if you guys want that. If you want the PDF, if you're an electronic notes person, um, I already sent that to Don and Peggy. If you guys want that, I can send that to you, however you want to do it. Each week I'll have what I think we're going to go over that night also as well. Um, so why Joel? I already mentioned this a little bit. Why Joel? I think growing up, my experience was not unique in the sense that, generally speaking, I was bored by the Old Testament. Like, I actually just kind of found it boring. It was just like, okay, this is written a long time ago. I have no idea who these people are, and I don't see in any way how this relates to my life. It's just, okay, I get it. It's God's word, but it's just boring, and it's just dry. And it wasn't until I went to Masters, as I mentioned, especially in Old Testament with Dr. Abner Chow, where I was just like, man, God's word is incredible, and I feel like I've never read this before. And so Joel is kind of this perfect, it's a small enough book where we can look at it, you know, in these eight to ten weeks, but I really hope this kind of serves as a, as a template 
for studying the rest of the Old Testament. And we're trying to do that, especially when we get into the literary context. You guys see that if you have the notes? I want to give you a survey kind of, okay, well, what's the context we're in? What's going on? Um, oftentimes, we need to go back to understand what's going on currently. And so the prophets really are incredible. Sometimes we read the prophets and it's like, okay, I have no idea what's going on here. Um, what are we talking about with all this, you know, locusts and the sun and moon are going to change and just all this weird language to us. It's like, what's going on? And so the prophets are amazing. And I want to help you understand, okay, how do we understand these words? What is the prophet even talking about here? And so that's why I wanted to look at Joel, because I think we typically don't run to Joel because it's not as simple as Proverbs. It's not as simple as Philippians or something like that. And so this is a, a harder book to understand, but I think if you can understand this, you can go into books like Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah or even Ezekiel and be like, okay, I think I generally know what's going on here. And you can learn from God's word. So with all that said, tonight's going to be introduction, but I hope it's not going to be boring introduction. I try to make things fun and interesting. We're going to get into why do we study Old Testament prophecy? How do we study it? Why should we study Joel? Before we do that, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much that you are good, you're kind, you're true. Lord, you've given us your word such that we would not be left in the dark, but you've given us your word such that your will for our lives would be clear. Lord, I just pray as we begin this study in Joel, a book that we don't study all that often or a book that we do not know that well, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things out of your word. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to um, see what your text clearly says. Lord, I pray that we would understand it, not just for um, mental knowledge, that we would learn neat facts or anything like that, but ultimately that it would change our lives. Lord, we ask that you would move in our hearts, help us to understand what you have given us in the book of Joel and why it is amazing and why you are great and greatly to be praised. So Lord, we ask as we begin this study that you would bless our time in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So why study Old Testament prophecy? Typically, I'm not going to have uh, slides, but because this is introduction, just to give you some, some framework, um, I, I do have some, some notes on the slide slide. So why study Old Testament prophecy? We want to study Joel. We want to see what's going on here. But first, I think it's actually wise to step back. Like, why should we? Like, why study Joel? Why, why shouldn't I just read Romans? Like, I understand what's going on in that book. Why don't I just read that one, okay? So first, why, but then also how. Okay, I get it. We need to study this, but how do I study it? So first, why should we study just big picture Old Testament prophecy? I want to just say this, because over a quarter of the Bible is prophetic, okay? And depending on how you define prophetic, um, you know, that can either be greater than 25% or less than, um, especially when you factor in the New Testament, right? There's a lot of what's going on in Matthew, now, there's a lot of, especially what's going on in Revelation, that is prophetic still yet to come. But, I mean, if we pretty much just say, well, you know what, this part of the Bible is hard to understand. It takes a lot of work. We're pretty much saying we don't need a quarter of the Bible, right? Like, that's substantial, okay? Like, we need to study this because a big part of the Bible is prophetic, especially the Old Testament. You come to books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're massive. We don't just want to say, Ah, it's hard to understand. We don't need this. I mean, you guys are familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16. What does it say? All Scripture is breathed out by God and is what? Profitable, okay? That means all of it. What is uh, Paul there even alluding to? All Scripture. What's the Scripture that he has? The Old Testament. He's saying all of that is profitable. All of that is um, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, Okay, well, if God has given you all of his word such that you would be uh, complete, that's what he says at, uh, at the end of verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. If we're saying uh, Old Testament prophecy, that's difficult, we're not going to understand that, you're actually leaving out some of the tools that God has given you to train you in righteousness, right? You see that? You're not fully equipped for the life of godliness that the scripture calls us to if we neglect the Old Testament. So, why should we study it? Well, because a big chunk of the Bible is prophetic. Second, to connect the puzzle pieces of the biblical storyline. This is essential. The Old Testament is not, contrary to what 
I just kind of assumed as a young kid and teenager growing up, the Old Testament is not a random collection of random stories about random people. It's just not. The Bible is God's book specifically written by God. It's breathed out by him using human authors to convey God's perfect revelation for us. It's not random. It's a unified text. And I hope you see this from Joel. This, I mean, I'm so excited to get into Joel. You're going to start to see all these connections that Joel is making, uh, particularly with the book of Deuteronomy, that you're going to be like, man, I feel like I've never read Deuteronomy before. I feel like I've never read Joel before. Because you're starting to see that, I, I'm skipping ahead. But sometimes people think of the prophets as they're just stupid. And, and what I mean by that is they're just, they're seeing visions, they're seeing these things, and they're just writing random things down, but they don't actually really know what they're talking about. That is not true. Actually, the prophets were a lot smarter than we give them credit for. They were brilliant men, men of God who loved him and loved his word. Okay? They were not stupid. They actually knew their Bible very well. And they're putting the text together under, obviously, the inspiration of the Spirit. If you haven't read, this is... Um, some of you guys always give me a hard time for like, what, you know, your top three books or something like that. Jeff was just talking about, about that a couple weeks ago. If you guys haven't read Dominion and Dynasty, you need to read it. I feel like every time I teach a class on the Old Testament, I mention this book. You need to read Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster, okay? And if you're like, hey, this is hard to read. I don't understand what's going on. Why is it so good? Let's get together and read it together because I love this book. I've read this book like three times and I was flipping through it again. I was like, I want to read this book again, okay? What Dempster does here, and it was just like, I, I got this in college, but i just never seen any other book do this. He just goes through the Old Testament book by book by book. Um, I mean, not exhaustive through every verse, but he's just going through how the storyline fits together. Like, like what's going on? I, I don't get how David, what he's doing here in 2 Samuel, has any significance to what's going on in Isaiah and to what's going on or what happened in Deuteronomy. Well, he's piecing those things together, okay? His main point, I mean, with the book being titled Dominion and Dynasty, is that that is what's going on, that God is establishing his rule. He's going to rule, he's going to have dominion in a specific place over a specific people. Who is that? Israel, right? He's going to establish his kingdom through Israel, and then he's going to rule over the whole world. Israel, we're going to get into this as we look at um, specifically Exodus. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests interceding for the nations. So the nations would come and see the greatness of God. That was what Israel was doing. So God is going to have dominion, and he's going to rule in that dominion through the Davidic dynasty. Okay, that's what he's going on with the book there, dominion and dynasty. Through the Davidic line, the Messiah is going to come. And we're going to talk about this a little bit when we get to 2 Samuel 7. Um, so if you haven't read it, Dominion and Dynasty, I highly, highly recommend that book. Um, all my professors, both at Masters and at Southern, were saying, you need to read Dominion and Dynasty, and for good reason. It's an excellent, excellent book. And so the prophets, and Dempster talks about this, and if you want more, it's like, I, I just, I don't have time. I'm already running behind. Um, but what he's doing in the prophets, what's going on in the prophets, is the prophets are almost like a pause on the storyline, Okay. So we're moving through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and the timeline's moving, right? You know, if we're moving from point A, we're moving to point B, we're moving to point C, okay, we're moving, okay? But when we get to the prophets, when we get to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we get to the minor prophets, the storyline is actually not continuing on. The prophets are actually ministering during the time of the books of First and Second Kings, okay? That's actually really important to remember, that chronologically, they're commenting back on the history of First and Second Kings. They're commenting on, you know, you're reading First and Second Kings, and it's like, all right, and this guy became king when he was, you know, however many years old, and he reigned for three years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he died, and everything that he was written was, you know, was written in the Acts of the Chronicles. And you move on to the next guy, and you're just like, okay, I get it. Bad dudes. Lots of bad dudes. Seems like everyone's bad. <laughs> so, I, like, I don't get it. What's going on? What's the significance of that? The prophets help you understand that. The prophets are ministering during that time and commenting on that period. Does that make sense? That's what's going on. And we're going to get into that when we get into Joel. Okay, so to connect the puzzle piece of the biblical storyline, you need to keep going here. Ultimately, number three, to know God. 
to know God. One of my pet peeves, I think I already alluded to this, is sometimes we read the Old Testament with a really selfish attitude and we can say, well, I don't personally get anything out of it. Like, I don't get how this pertains to me. And that's where I was. And that's a really selfish, sinful view of Scripture. The Bible is ultimately not about you, it's about God. It's about him. You need to know him. Turn to Jeremiah 9. Jeremiah 9, 23. We will be doing some cross-referencing back and forth. So plan ahead, bring your Bible. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. This is such a helpful verse. Two verses. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That's the goal for the Old Testament. That's the goal for why we're doing this class. That's why we're looking at Joel, that we would understand and know the Lord. That's our ultimate priority. If we have any other priority of, well, I need to get something out of it, something like this, that's idolatry. No, our goal is to understand and know God and to worship him as a result. Every time we open our Bible, that should be our question. How can we understand and know God and love him as a result? And so we ask these questions. What is God doing? What is he doing in the book of Joel? What's the point of it all? How does this bring him glory? Those are the questions we want to ask. And Jeremiah 9.23 is a really good example of that. Look also at Luke 24. Luke 24 is another good reminder for us. Luke 24, starting in verse 25. This is after the resurrection. Jesus has uh, been walking with a couple of disciples on the way to Emmaus. And uh, they don't recognize him. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Coming on to verse 25, Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, that's what it means, should suffer for these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I mean, you can just almost like put yourself in this situation. Sometimes you don't want to read yourself in the Bible. Just kind of do this. It's like, what if those disciples responded how we respond? Well, Jesus, well, we didn't read the the prophets and Moses because it was just kind of boring and like, I didn't really get anything out of it. Like, we laughed, but it's just like, what do you think Jesus would say? Like, it would not be good. Like, get away from me, you wicked servant. <laughs> like, like, do you see the sinfulness of that response? It's just ridiculous. No. We read the scriptures and we read the Old Testament seeking to understand and know who Christ is, right? So he's, he's going back to Moses, right? Verse 27, he's going um, to the Pentateuch. And all the prophets, if you jump over to verse uh, 44, he even expands on this more. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That would have been a traditional Jewish way to um, talk about what we have as the Old Testament. Um, the Psalms, they would lump in with all the other uh, like poetic writings like Proverbs or Song of Psalms and stuff like that. So when we go through the Old Testament, we want to see, okay, how does this point to Christ? Not every single verse and not every single word is going to be a direct revelation of Christ, but it reveals the triune God. It reveals what he wants for our lives. It reveals his plan for the world. And so we need to know it. If God has given us his word as a revelation, then we need to know it. So the Old Testament is specific in what it says, as I would argue from Luke 24. And God rebukes his followers for not knowing what it says. So we have a responsibility to know what it says. Okay, so that's just three reasons. I mean, we could go on and on and on. 
there are many reasons why we should study Old Testament prophecy, ultimately to know God. But I want to move on. How do we study Old Testament prophecy? How? How do we study Old Testament prophecy? I want to um, promote another book here. If you're like, hey, I'm so excited by this class. I even want to do more homework. Like, it's just so much fun. Um, If you want more, get this book, Back Toward the Future. It's not the movie with, uh, what's his face? Um, Marty McFly. Um, That's Back to the Future. Um, No, this is Back Toward the Future by Walter Kaiser. The more and more I've read from Walter Kaiser, I really, really enjoy and appreciate um, what he's writing. If you're like, man, that sounds like a hard book, Back Toward the Future, hence for interpreting biblical prophecy. So he wrote this for like the lay reader in the pew. Okay, so like he wrote it for all y'all, okay? He wrote it for me too. Like I really enjoyed this book. Um, It's really easy to understand, okay? And if you're like, man, I just want to know how can I study the Old Testament prophets better, start here. Um, Back Toward the Future, Walter Kaiser, Hints for Interpreting Biblical Prophecy. Um, It's out of stock in this first edition. It's like 24 bucks on Amazon, which is a lot for me. I'm like, ah, I just buy used books. So if you want it on eBay, it's like six bucks. You can just find it on eBay. Um, I buy used books all the time, so that's just what I would do. You can do what you want, Um, but that's just what I would recommend. And some of these points uh, that I'm even going to mention are going to be directly from him. I want to start with these first two that I think are really helpful, and they kind of go hand in hand. Okay, Number one, don't substitute riddles for what God has made plain. Okay, Don't substitute riddles for what God has made plain. Second, don't underestimate the intelligibility of the text. Okay, these are, are both connected. This is a quote from Kaiser. It's real simple, but it's to the point. When God reveals the future, he does so to be understood. Okay? God is not trying to hide things in Revelation. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, although that's funny because even the title of the book of Revelation means an unveiling, a, a revelation, God revealing something, okay? So scripture is not this, you know, kind of hidden cloak and dagger where it's just like, oh, yes, this is what you think it means. But actually, in reality, there's a hidden meaning that you never knew. Like, it's just like, it's not trying to do that, okay? That's not what God is doing with the prophets. And we'll get into this, okay, but maybe there's some harder passages. I'm not saying that there aren't symbols in the prophets and in the book of Revelation. There, There certainly are. But we need to interpret it. We don't come to the prophets with a new hermeneutic. And this is actually a big difference. We're going to hopefully get into this. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, but this is actually what some people who are brothers and sisters in Christ, more on the Presbyterian, traditional, reform side of things, they will actually do this. That actually the New Testament has given us, because of the revelation of Christ, we now have a Christocentric hermeneutic by which we go back to the Old Testament and we interpret the Old Testament differently than how it would have been interpreted by the original audience. Does that make sense? I just said a lot, okay? So people, yes, yeah. Because, Christ, because of the Christ advent, because of the work of Christ on the cross, because of the gospel, that is the crown point of um, revelation and the redemptive history. Because of that event, we now take that event and we now reinterpret the Old Testament Christocentrically, in other words, like, I would say this is kind of demeaning, but they try to find Christ under every rock, right? So if there's anything that mentions blood, like even the slaughter of, you know, the prophets of Baal, oh, you know, it's like it's prefiguring the blood of Christ in some random mystical way, okay? There are people who actually advocate that we have a new Christocentric hermeneutic because of Christ. I'm saying we don't want to do that, okay? But I'm saying that there are people that are brothers and sisters in Christ that we can learn a lot from that would advocate that, okay? And so that'll actually maybe help you understand, you know, you pick up a book, you pick up a book on like, you know, the Psalms or something like that from a Presbyterian guy, and you're like, man, I'm just not seeing that in that Psalm. It's like, well, that's because it's probably not there. (laughs) That's what I would say. Um, But he's coming at it from a, a different hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just a fancy word for how we study the Bible, okay? If you're like, I don't even know what that means. It's just how we study the Bible, the rules and method of interpretation, okay? So those are just two preliminary points, okay? Um, Don't open, I would just say, don't open Pandora's box of all these hidden meanings and all this secret, weird stuff. And I want to give you an example. Um, Turn to Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah 26. 
Now, I am a nerd, and I find this stuff fascinating just by who I am, but hopefully you will also find this fascinating. So in the context here, Jeremiah um, is ministering in Jerusalem. Um, this would have been um, probably 7th, well, probably 6th century, um, so like year 600, getting close. Actually, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, 6th century, um, the, the 500s. Um, and um, he's ministering in Jerusalem, and he warns the city, hey, the city's going to be destroyed, okay, because of your sin, okay? Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, okay? Uh, you can see this. Um, I'll just skip, we don't have time. But he says, the city's going to be destroyed. You come down to verse 11. This is Jeremiah 26, verse 11. The priests and the other prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves a sentence of death because he's prophesied against the city, as you have heard with your own ears. They're like, hey, we don't like what you just said. You said you're going to destroy the city. This is ridiculous. No, 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 that's wrong. We don't like you. Yeah, no. Now, Jeremiah is speaking from the Lord. He says, verse 13, you need to mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And if you do that, the Lord will res- relent of that disaster that he's promised against you. Come down to verse 17, okay? So you've got this Jeremiah, he's talking, and you've got all these other people who are saying, no, we don't like that. Verse 17, and certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, these are guys on Jeremiah's side, okay? Verse 18, Micah, you guys remember the book of Micah? That's this guy, okay? Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, and this is a quote from Micah 3, verse 12, the direct quote. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins in the mountain of the house of a wooded height. Verse 19, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all, um, yeah, king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? No, they didn't. Did, not the, did he not fear the Lord and treat the favor of the Lord? That's what he did. I don't know if you guys remember Isaiah 37. Remember the Assyrians are all gathered around Jerusalem, and it just looks like certain doom is going to come. Hezekiah goes, he prays to the Lord, and then remember that night, the angel of the Lord goes out and kills 185,000 of the Assyrians. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like maybe ringing some bells. That's Isaiah 36, 37, 38, and 39, okay? Okay, the, the prophets know their Old Testament here. The, the elders here, they're saying, hey, remember what Micah said? And this would have been about 150, 200 years before. Remember what he said? And this is what we need to do? And look at what the people did. They repented, and did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? End of verse 19. But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Now, we could say a lot of things about this passage. But how do they interpret Micah 3 and Isaiah 36, 37, 38, and 39? Like, just simply? Like, literally? Like, God says he's going to destroy this unless you repent. So what they do? Repent, and God didn't destroy them. So I actually think it's a really helpful verse for how we interpret the prophets. How did they interpret the prophets? Just according to the normal rules of language. What I would say is just a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, okay? What did the author intend? Well, we discern what he intended by studying his grammar, what he said in the historical context, Well, what did he say? Israel's going to be destroyed unless you repent. What did the people do? They repented. And he's applying that to their situation, saying, hey, if we don't do this, we're going to be destroyed. We need to repent. Now, if you guys know the book of Jeremiah, do they repent? No. And Jerusalem is destroyed, 538 B.C. So all that is to say, don't underestimate the intelligibility of the text. Take the... I would just say, sometimes I don't like this language, but take the plain, simple meaning of the text unless there's compelling reason otherwise. And hopefully as we go through Joel, you'll see some, where some compelling reasons maybe for otherwise. Number three, don't underestimate the intelligence of the prophets. I already mentioned this, but they weren't dumb. They knew what they were saying because of the passage I'm about to quote. First Peter. Chapter 1. You, don't have, you can turn there if you want. I would just, this is a key passage, I would argue, to remember. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10, 11, and 12. 
So the reason choline is because they'll take this passage and say, look, this passage even says that the prophets had no idea what they were talking about. And it's not until we come to the New Testament that's actually clarified that, that we can know what the prophets were saying, okay? This is what 1 Peter 1, 10, 11, and 12 says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, okay? Now, they would say that because they'll say, look, they don't know what they're talking about. They're, they're searching and inquiring, but they don't know, um, you know, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted all these things to happen, okay? Actually, the text is very clear. They didn't know the time. They didn't know when it was going to happen. But when Joel is prophesying, hey, the day of the Lord is going to come, it's going to be a day of darkness. It's not going to be a, a day of joy. There's going to be immense destruction. There's going to be wailing. That's what we're going to talk about when we get to Joel. He knows what he's talking about. Now, some people will say, no, that's actually just symbolic. He clearly didn't know what he was talking about. Actually, that's referring to something else. Does that make sense? They'll say the prophets didn't know what they were saying. I would say, no, they knew what they were saying. They didn't know when what they were saying would take place. Does that make sense? There's a very important difference between the two. And verse 12 goes on. It was revealed to them, revealed to the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you. I find that fascinating, that the prophets knew actually what they were saying and what they were writing had ramifications beyond the present audience, right? So we're not crazy when we think that, okay, what Joel said over 2,000 years ago has ramifications for the present day. No, actually, 1 Peter 1.12 says that the prophets knew that what they were saying had ramifications for the church. Do you, do you guys see that from 1 Peter 1.12? I find that amazing, that they knew what they were saying would go on and that it would impact how we live even today. No, the prophets were brilliant men. They knew the Old Testament. We're going to see a really cool example of that when we come to uh, Joel chapter, end of Joel 2. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know, oh, hey, I'm writing this for the church after, you know, yeah, because the church is a mystery as Ephesians 2 and 3 is very, very clear that this is something new that was not revealed to the Old Testament saints, but the Old Testament saints knew that there would be believers after them. Does that make sense? The difference between the two? I need to keep moving here, man. Number three, don't underestimate the intelligence of the prophets. Let me move here. Oh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a quote. This is, actually, this is actually an important point I need to talk about. This is from Louis Burkhoff. He's a classic um, kind of reformed theologian. He's written a really good systematic theology. He says a lot of good stuff. We would disagree strong, I would disagree strongly with what he says here. There is no truth in the assertion that the intent of the secondary authors, guys like Luke and Joel, there's no truth in the assertion that the intent of those authors determined by the grammatical historical method always represents in all its fullness the meaning of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So you're like, I don't even know what that guy's saying there. <laughs> That's okay. Basically what he's saying there, and this is common, and as a church we would disagree with it, that there's two, two intents in Scripture. There's the human intent. In other words, what Luke or Joel wrote. And then there's also a divine intent, and that they are different intents. So when Luke wrote, for example, um, you know, the Son of Man, you know, came to, not not to serve, not to serve, but not to be served, but to serve. I almost got that wrong. Okay, that might have been what Luke or one of the gospel writers meant, but actually, the Holy Spirit has a deeper, hidden meaning that was divorced from Luke's meaning. You see the difference between the two? We would say, no, that's not true. We would say that what is communicated in the pages of Scripture is completely and fully the words of man and completely and fully the words of God at the exact same time, and that their intents are not split, but they're actually unified. Okay? And that's actually how a lot of theologians end up with, well, yes, 
when Peter said this in Acts, he meant this, but we can now later, because we can understand the Holy Spirit's intent, understand that actually there's a different meaning there, okay? If you're like, man, that just sounds weird, it is weird, okay? That's not good, that's not what we want to do. There is one meaning in Scripture with multiple implications and significance. So, Teresa, I'll get your question. I think this is a point I mentioned later on. Just because there is one meaning and one text only means one thing, that doesn't mean that that prophet who said that had an exhaustive understanding of the implications of what he said. Okay? Does that make sense? So what I mean by that is um, if so-and-so, man, I should have thought of a better illustration, but I didn't think of any. <laughs> Uh, if, if, if a prophet says one thing and an apostle picks up on that, he cannot contradict what the prophet said, his meaning, but he can move forward with the implications of what he said. Does that make sense? Okay. Can I give you an example? So like one example would be, like a classic example would kind of be like Ephesians 5, the mystery of uh, of marriage being a picture of Christ in the church, okay? You know, Paul goes in in this Ephesians 5. And so, like, honestly, a good way to put it would be, like, the mystery language, which is employed in the New Testament, something that was not revealed to the Old Testament authors, but has now been revealed to um, the apostles in the New Testament. Um, marriage would be a good example because Paul, in that, we can just turn there, turn to Ephesians 5. Sometimes I feel like I get myself into issues when I paraphrase rather than just read the... Read the passage. <laughs> if you go to Ephesians 5, verse 31. Ephesians 5, verse 31. This is a quote from Genesis 2, right? Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay? Paul is not saying that what Moses wrote when he wrote Genesis 2.24 actually means something else. Now, because of the Christ advent, we realize that, oh, marriage means something totally different. No, marriage still means what it means. One, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that refers to Christ and the church. Okay, so he's taking that meaning... And he's expounding, whoa, okay, all of a sudden, marriage has a lot more significance now as New Testament believers that when someone in the Old Testament, they wouldn't have recognized that, obviously, because they didn't know of Christ in the church, but they wouldn't say, wait a minute, you're totally contradicting what Moses said. Does that make sense, Brendan? Is that, is that a good illustration? Does that help? He's not contradicting anything. He's building on what the prophets, and, um, yeah, what the prophets have already said. Does that help? And you're going to see that multiple times throughout the New Testament. We're going to see that when we come to, um, I think when we come to Acts 2, probably when we come to Joel. So there's a difference between what I would say meaning of the text and the significance of that text. The significance is going to be expounded upon in the New Testament. So um, all that to say, anytime someone starts saying, yes, the human intent was this, but the divine intent was something hidden in meaning, uh, alarm bells should start going off. And, and the main reason for that is, who determines the extra meaning? I mean, that's really the problem. You, you start reading all these things, and it's just like, well, I mean, there's just endless possibilities. It's like, who determines what the actual hidden meaning is? And it's like, what you had for lunch, does that determine it? It's like, I, I don't know. Like, it's sketchy. So a couple of review points here, just going back to this. Point three. Point four, go back to the past to understand the future. Go back to the past to understand the future. And we're going to do this in Joel. The Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are vital to understanding what's going on in Joel. They're essential. If you don't know what's going on in a book like Jeremiah, it's probably because you don't know the Old Testament really well. And I'm saying that for all of us. I mean, if you're, I mean, it just, it just kind of makes sense. We're, you know, 2,000 plus years removed. We're not living in Israel. We're not living there. We're not familiar with all these things. And so we need to go back. We need to do better homework and look to the Pentateuch to understand what's going on in the present and also 
what Joel is talking about, what's going to happen in the future. Number five, I, this is what I was already talking about. Understand the difference between meaning and significance. I would say a text only has one meaning, but the significance of that meaning or the implications of that meaning can be expanded, and it is expanded, uh, especially by uh, the New Testament authors, and that can be profound. But they're building off of and developing one another. They're never contradicting um, what was previously said. Number six, remember the sky monster principle. And you're like, what in the world? Okay, the sky monster principle. I don't know if you guys were in for Old Testament 2. I talked about this. And this is just from uh, a class I was in. If, if, here's an illustration. Sky monster says, oh, no, sorry, not sky monster. Some prophet says, hey, sky monster is going to show up, and he is going to completely, utterly destroy the city of Bakersfield. Every single home will be destroyed. There will not be any water left in the city. Every single person is going to die. The sky monster prophecy has come, and it will come to pass. Okay, sky monster prophecy. Okay, so sky monster comes. He destroys the Riverwalk Park. He destroys, uh, I don't know, all the new homes up of 7th Standard, right? And he destroys all these things. But, you know, the mall downtown or wherever it is is still standing. You know, the Padre is still there. You know, maybe 200,000 people died, but there's still, you know, a few hundred thousand. Has the Sky Monster prophecy been fulfilled? This is not a trick question. No. No, it has not. Okay? Sky Monster comes. He destroys more. He blows up some other towns. And he just destroys everything. But there's still a remnant. There's still some survivors, and there's still some building standings. Has the prophecy been fulfilled? No. Okay? It's not until Sky Monster finally comes. He kills everyone. Everything's been destroyed. I know it's a beautiful picture. Okay? Only then has the prophecy been fulfilled. Okay? So when we come to Scripture, and it says something very, very clear, like, this is my argument, in Joel 2, when he'll say something like, never again will my people ever be a reproach among the nations. They will dwell securely. Okay, well, when we look at it, it's like, okay, Israel is still kind of a reproach among the nations. They still are under attack by everyone today. They almost got exterminated under the Holocaust. Clearly, that has not yet come to pass. So when Joel was saying that, has it been fulfilled yet? I would argue no, that it's still yet to come, okay? Another way you could just remember the Sky Monster Principle is it ain't over till it's over. It's got to all be complete. And that's actually why I kind of have, this is just a pet peeve, it's not, you can disagree with me on this, but when people say like partial fulfillment, I actually don't really like that language because it's like something isn't partially fulfilled. It's either fulfilled or it isn't. It's in the, maybe you could say in the process of being fulfilled, right? Maybe that's a better way to say it. But sometimes they'll say, oh, it was partially fulfilled. It's like, well, it's either completely fulfilled or it isn't. Um, so that's just, a, that's just me, okay? Okay, there's so many other reasons I need to get through this first page. Why study Joel? If I don't get through this first page, you guys are never going to come back because you're going to be like, we're never even going to get to Joel. Why study Joel? Number one, because Joel displays the practical, applicable nature of prophecy or eschatology. I think one of my concerns, I know Mark and Mike would say the exact same thing, is sometimes people study Revelation and they study Ezekiel because they want to fit everything on a nice chart. I've got a colorful chart and it goes over here and I know that I'm at this point in this chart and, um, oh, all this stuff is going to happen later so I don't have to worry about it. I can kick back, chill, and relax because of my chart. Okay, Joel completely contradicts that. In fact, the point of prophecy, the point of this warning of the eschatological future, if you're wondering what even is eschatological, eschatology, that's just the study of the last things, okay? End times, last things, eschatos, last, okay? We're studying the things at the end. We study the things at the end so that we would be changed in the present. That's actually the point of why God reveals those things, okay? So when we come to Joel, and maybe you guys are like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's really, really profound. That's amazing. But where does it fit on my chart? I would just say, no, no, no. Put the chart down. <laughs> how does this change how you live today? Because that's the point of Joel. And you're going to see that, especially in Joel 2, verse 12. This is amazing context of the day of the Lord. And there's going to be people climbing in the windows of Jerusalem like a thief in the night. And you're like, oh, maybe that's where Jesus is getting that from. Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, 
Okay, it's like, okay, all this is going on. And then Joel 2.12 says, yet even now return to me. Repent with fasting and weeping and rend your hearts and not your garments. This is, I think, one of the second or third points on here. Um, Joel is one of the best books, clearest books, on a biblical definition of repentance. I think that's actually point three, so I'll save that for when I get there. But number one, it's practical. It's applicable. Number two, because Joel is the most extensive treatment of, quote, the day of Yahweh, or the day of the Lord. You guys familiar with that phrase, right? You come to the New Testament, day of the Lord, okay? They're, they're talking about that. Well, their meaning is rooted in the Old Testament. You come to Joel, I'm not going to dive into this, but five times, more than any other book in the Old Testament, Joel mentions the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Joel 1.15, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. Joel 2, verse 1, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. 2, verse 11, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Come over to end of chapter 2. Um, the sun's going to be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Chapter 3, verse 14, for the day of the Lord is near. So five times he's talking about the day of the Lord. And then also you come to the New Testament, especially, I mean, I think of 1 Thessalonians. You guys remember this? 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That whole verse right there maybe is rooted in Joel 2. I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. I don't know. Second Thessalonians 2. Uh, let me see. Verse 2. Right? He's warning them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So at least when Paul is writing this, he's saying that the day of the Lord is still future. The day of the Lord is still yet to come. And so we're going to go back to this. What is he talking about? What is the day of the Lord? And after this class, you're going to know exactly what it is. You're not going to have any questions at all. Number three, because Joel clearly defines repentance. I already mentioned this. It is a, the Lord actually used this passage immensely in my life in, in college um, it was a sermon by Vodi Bakum. I can still remember this. He was preaching on Psalm 51, and he alluded to 2 Corinthians 7, and he alluded to Joel 2 on what biblical repentance actually means. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter, and we're going to look at that. Repentance is holistic and exhaustive. It's not just partial. Um, it's true internal change that brings about the external change. He says, rend your hearts and not your garments. But then he also calls them to sackcloth and ashes and weeping. So there is an external aspect that is important, but we have to get the order right. Internal change brings about the external change. And then lastly, number four, and I want to spend, I'm going to hold you guys for maybe five minutes over. If we can keep talking, we can keep talking. Because Joel plainly articulates that there is unfulfilled prophecy. That there is unfulfilled prophecy. Hopefully, by the time we're done with Joel, you'll understand why Crossway holds to a national and ethnic redemption for Israel, okay? That God is not done with Israel, that he still has a plan for them. We believe Israel is going to return to their land, and they are going to have a glorious future as a nation in the land with the Messiah, with Jesus reigning on the throne, okay? Now, with what I just said, that's actually the, probably, I would say, the minority view in evangelicalism today, okay? The belief that God is going to um, rule from a throne in Jerusalem, that there's going to be a literal temple, and that um, Israel as a nation is going to have significance in God's plan in the future is actually probably the minority view, okay? Um, and there are guys that, you know, we... we love and respect and their brothers and sisters in Christ, but we just disagree with them on this, and that's okay. Like, we have good reasons for why we disagree, um, and hopefully you'll see why that's the case. Um, let me see. I wanted to, I wanted to put this up, and, and we can talk about, this is where I said, if, if you need to leave, we can pause, but, oh, sorry, I didn't know my slides weren't working. It, it was all right back there. Um, so this is a helpful kind of taxonomy of theological systems. And you're like, oh my goodness, what are these words? I don't even know what that means. It's okay, I don't either. Um, and the people who believe these things don't know what they mean. Um, so this is a, actually a helpful spectrum. I'll help you understand it, okay? 
On one side of the spectrum, over here on the left, you have theological systems. In other words, these are systems for how we interpret and understand the Bible, okay? The big distinction would be talking about church in Israel, okay? This is always what it comes down to. Has the church replaced Israel? Is Israel done with, okay? The people on the left side of the spectrum are going to say, no, God's not done with Israel, okay? The people on the right side of the spectrum, you can kind of see that middle line there, and there's nuance, but generally speaking, the people on the right side of that spectrum are going to say, yes, the church has replaced Israel. Israel no longer has significance in God's prophetic plans. He's, he's done with them. They either, you know, the promises that we seem, that they seem to be unconditional, that God is going to bless Israel, he's going to make a great nation out of them, he's going to do all these things. Well, Israel forfeited them because of their disobedience, okay? I would say, well, no, the promises were unconditional. They didn't depend on their obedience because that's what Genesis 12 through 17 says, but Again, that's why we differ. Um, so like people on the left, okay, we would probably be, as a church, we'd probably be um, on the revised dispensationalism column right there um, or progressive dispensationalism somewhere, somewhere in there. And again, you know, depending on who you talk to, they're going to nuance things a little bit differently. But generally speaking, you know, revised dispensationalism, that's guys like John MacArthur, okay? He's going to be over there. Um, you know, kind of the old Dallas Theological Seminary guys, um, who's on the, J. Vernon McGee, I don't know if you know, you guys heard of that guy? I always hear him on the radio. I actually like listening to him. Um, it's kind of like sitting around with Grandpa reading the Bible. I really like J. Vernon McGee. He would be over there. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of guys like that. Um, you know, churches in town, like I'm pretty sure, well, I know Grace Bible would be dispensational. Um, pretty sure Laurel, Laurel Glenn would be dispensational, where they are somewhere on that spectrum, okay? In other words, saying, hey, there's a future for Israel in the future, Okay. What exactly that's going to look like, maybe they're going to differ upon it, okay? Um, yeah, okay. So then you've kind of got this middle break there, and you've got this covenantal side of the equation. Okay, so like where, where I went to college, masters would be on the dispensational side, okay? Where I went to seminary with Southern, they would actually be on the other side, okay? So most of those guys there would be progressive covenantalists. Um, so they would see, yes, there's there's... They kind of get around it. They kind of do some gymnastics, and it's like, come on, guys. Um, but, you know, well, you know, there's still a future for Israel, but it's in the eternal state, and they actually have some good arguments, and I actually appreciate a lot of what they're saying, but um, that's where they would be. And, and I'll just say this. This is actually true and encouraging. In the last 20 years, there's been a lot of movement to the middle, okay, that there's actually been a lot of interaction um, in fact, so Matthew Harmon, he's a dispensationalist guy, and I can't remember, it might have been Greg Beal. They, they wrote a book together, and it's like, wow, like, and they, and they were talking about this stuff. So there's been actually a lot of movement. We actually agree on a lot more than we disagree with, okay? Um, so, so that should encourage you, okay? Um, but you've got this, this other side of the spectrum. So covenant theology, I want to say a word on this, because this was very confusing to me until like a couple years ago, and I was like, oh, okay, that's what we're talking about. So classic, you know, covenant theology would be a guy like R.C. Sproul, right? We all love R.C. Um, he's with the Lord. His eschatology has been corrected now that he's with the Lord. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm joking. But, uh, but maybe, I don't know. I mean, he could, he could be wrong, but I don't know. But anyways, kind of classic covenant theology, okay? And so many times people would say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a covenant theologian, covenant, covenant, all this stuff. And I'm like, I just don't get it because, like, we believe in covenants. Like we go to Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. You go back to Genesis 6, um, well, 7, 8, and 9, the Noahic covenant. Like they're very clearly there. Noahic covenant, um, Abrahamic covenant. We have the Mosaic covenant in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We've got, you know, the Davidic covenant. That's what we're all about, man. Second Samuel 7, it's an awesome passage. The new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Like I believe in covenants. So where's the difference here? This is really helpful. Um, covenant theologians are not talking about those covenants, okay? We actually, we, we have, we both see those covenants in the Bible. What covenant theology is as a system is three, this is what they would say, three theological covenants um, that are not explicit in Scripture. They probably wouldn't like that I just said that, but they're certainly implicit, okay? And I actually agree with them that I think they are implicit, okay? Um, to an extent. The three covenants would be this, the covenant of redemption, covenant of works, and the covenant of grace, okay? The covenant of redemption would be a, co I'll 
Is anyone here like, what's a covenant? Is anyone okay with that? Do you, so I, let me actually go back. A covenant, uh, a simply way, is an agreement between two parties, okay? And they can be flushed out in, in a variety of different ways. But like we talk about marriage, it's a covenant relationship. It's an agreement between two parties, okay? And so a covenant, like when we talk about the, um, for example, the Noahic covenant. After the flood, the Lord cuts a covenant. He makes a covenant with Noah and all mankind. And he says, hey, I'm never going to judge the earth again through water. I'm never going to do this again. That's an agreement, okay? Well, that's unilateral. That, that one, there's actually no obligation for Noah. Like, he doesn't have to do anything. Like, it's just God saying, I'm never going to do this again, okay? When you come to the Mosaic covenant, right? Um, you know, in Exodus 20, 10 commandments, there's actually, God says, hey, I'm going to bless you if you do these things, but if you don't do these things, I'm going to curse you. So there's actually an obligation for the people. They have to do something, okay? So that's a covenant, an agreement between two parties. So the covenant theology they see the covenant of redemption as being a covenant before the foundation of the world, before creation, a covenant in the Trinity. God saying that, um, you know, mankind is going to fall. Jesus Christ is going to be the one to redeem all mankind. Okay. Now, I actually would go to, you know, pastors like Ephesians. And it's like, I actually see that, right? Before the foundation of the world, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He has this plan. Um, I would just be hesitant with the language of covenant because I would want to use covenant language where I find it in scripture, where the biblical covenants actually are, okay? But so they have covenant of redemption, then they have covenant of works, Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, God's saying, Adam, if you do this, if you obey, if you don't eat um, the fruit of the tree, you will be blessed. Okay, well, Adam didn't do that. Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation 22 is all covenant of grace, okay? So covenant of redemption before, okay, eternity, and it's actually governing everything going forward. You have the covenant of works just for Genesis 1 and 2. Really small <laughs> piece of the puzzle, right? And then Genesis 3 on, everything is a covenant of grace. Okay, so the Noahic covenant. It's a manifestation of the covenant of grace. Um, the Abrahamic covenant. It's a manifestation of the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant. Manifestation of the covenant of grace. Davidic covenant. Same thing. New covenant. Same. Does that make sense? Okay. And that was actually, really, just a second. That was really helpful for me because all these years I was like, what are people talking about when they're talking about covenant theology? Like, I believe in covenants. They're actually talking about a different set of covenants. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. No, in, in the scripture. It's all covenant of grace. No, so, so, so we, yeah, so actually dispensationals and covenant theologians would say the same thing on this. We're under the new covenant. We're in the ministry of the new covenant they would say that the new covenant is a manifestation of the ministry of, uh, or the covenant of grace. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. And so that's where covenant theology is coming from. And again, like RC, I love RC, a lot of good stuff going on there. Christian reconstructionalism, you guys heard of Doug Wilson? Okay, you don't need to listen to him too much, but I wouldn't listen to him. He says, a, he says some good stuff, but he's, he's on another side of the covenant theology spectrum, um, yeah, I don't, I don't need to get into it, but if, if yeah. Oh, yeah, no. No, he probably meant the other way. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, so, so Doug Wilson and, um, you know, the guys at Apologia Studios, James White, Jeff Durbin, those guys would be, furthermore on that spectrum. That's when you get more into like post-millennial eschatology. Um, in other words, that we need to ush to some extent, we need to usher in the return of Christ. Um, and so, yeah, if you guys want to talk about that more, I'd be more than happy um, to talk about it. I'm I'm already over time. Let me see. Yes. Yes. No. So that's another helpful point, okay? Um, all millennialists, which, do you guys know what I'm talking about? All millennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism, I'll, I'll talk about it, okay? Basically, there's three views when we come to Revelation 20, okay? Christ returns when, okay? I'll start with what Crossway believes. I'll define the truth, <laughs> what I think is the truth. And then, and then the other views. Uh, premillennialism will say that um, Christ returns pre-before the millennium, Okay? 
So Revelation 20 says Christ is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. We would say Christ returns and then he reigns on the earth for a thousand years because that's what Revelation 20 says he's going to do. Okay? And it's at that time that Israel is going to be restored to the land um, and that you know, all these glorious unfulfilled prom, uh, promises and prophecies like Joel 3 are going to be fulfilled then. Okay? That's premillennialism. Okay? All millennialism would say that that thousand-year reign is, to one extent, symbolic, okay? It's not actually a literal 1,000 years. Now, there are some amillennialists, to your question, Teresa, that will say that currently the church is living in that millennial reign, okay? That, that presently this is, you know, the reign of Christ, that um, it's, it's the reign of Christ in our hearts spiritually and symbolic, Okay? But a lot of all mills, actually, and Sam Storms is one proponent of this, and he's actually helpful for me for understanding, because I just don't get that first part. I'm like, of course Christ is reigning in our hearts, okay? Duh, but that's not what's going on in Revelation 20. Um, what they would say is that actually the millennial reign of Christ is the intermediate state in heaven. In other words, the millennial kingdom is Christ reigning in heaven right now, okay? Now, I don't agree with that, but I'm like, okay, I'm more sympathetic to that than just like Christ is reigning in our hearts spiritually. So Christ is truly reigning over a kingdom. It's a kingdom not of this world. It's the intermediate state um, where if we die, if believers die now, they go to be with Christ. That's the millennial kingdom. It's just symbolic. It's not actually a thousand years, but he's reigning to that extent, okay? That's all millennialism. Post-millennialism would say, so it's the opposite of pre. If we believe Christ returns before the a thousand years, post would say he returns after the a thousand years, okay? And that a thousand years can be, depending on postmillennialists, that can be literal or it can be symbolic. Okay, so maybe there'll be a thousand years. Postmillennialists believe that there's going to be a golden age of the church. The most prominent postmillennial would be Jonathan Edwards. A lot of the Puritans were postmillennial, but it, it differs um, in terms of how it all works out. Um, but they would say that there's going to be a golden age of the church. The church is going to reign triumphant um, on the world. And then Christ is going to return, and then we're going to enter into the eternal state. Okay? Does that make sense, those three positions? Crossway would be pre-millennial. Okay? We would say, contrary to post-millennialism, that the world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse before Christ returns. Um, and then he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Okay? I need just one more. Just bear with me. I wanted to quote this, okay? Because this is a Graham Goldsworthy. So Graham... Great guy. I've learned a lot from him. He's got some good stuff. He'd be a covenant theologian, okay? So he'd be kind of over there on that right side of the spectrum there. Totally disagree with this statement. I want to assert categorically, and this emphasis is, oh, sorry. I don't know why it's not moving. I want to assert categorically that all prophecy was fulfilled in the gospel event at the first coming of Jesus. I had an of there, okay? Nothing will happen at the return of Christ that has not already happened in him at his first coming. I completely disagree with that, okay? He, as a covenant theologian, as someone seeing the covenant of grace marching all the way through, is that, look, the most important event in all of history was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything has been fulfilled in the gospel. We would say, no, like, yes, it's massively important, but one thing that I think the covenant theologians do is they downplay the significance of Christ's second coming, Christ is going to reign on this earth, and he's going to restore it. The original creation agenda, which we were supposed to talk about tonight that we didn't get to, we're going to talk about next week, has not been thwarted. God is going to rule. And so that's his own emphasis, that all prophecy was fulfilled in the gospel event at the first coming of Jesus. We want to say, no. Um, there's more I could say on this. Joel, I think, is going to help us understand that, you know, if I go back to point four here, oops, I don't know why this isn't working super well. Well, you know what? It's not working well. I'll just do that. <laughs> Point four, right? Because Joel plainly articulates that there's unfulfilled prophecy. And we can eagerly anticipate that. We can eagerly wait for the return of the king. We can eagerly hope for all these prophecies, okay? So that's introduction. Was that kind of exciting? Was that fun? I don't know. I hope so. I love this stuff, so I can talk about this way too long. So um, next week, we're going to try and get into literary context. Okay, so if you have the notes, try to bring those back. I'll print this out um, if you just want the page for that night. 
we're going to do a quick fly-through of the Old Testament. We want to understand, okay, what's going on even in the Old Testament in this context that Joel is writing, okay? So we're going to do literary context, but also historical context. What's the exact specific historical situation? Once you do those two things, I think Joel's going to come alive in ways you're like, I didn't even know, okay? That's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, any questions that are going to take a couple seconds? Oh, past crossway? Uh, probably not because the, so dispensationalism as a system, well, actually, I would say this. All these systems are in movement, okay? Sometimes they'll say, like, hey, this is what covenant theology has always said. It's like, no, it's not. It's, you guys have moved, and that's okay. So, like, classic dispensationalism would be more of, like, um, what's his name, Schofield? The Schofield Study Bible in, like, the 1850s? Don would know, I think, maybe. Schofield Study Bible? Oh, okay, sorry. I didn't mean it in that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's not what I meant. But like Sco- Sco- Schofield, um, I think he was kind of a more classic dispensationalist. Um, that's more of a, they don't really exist anymore. I would say the vast majority of dispensationalists are either revised, which is where, you know, guys like John MacArthur, Master Seminary, Shepherd Seminary, guys like that, generally speaking, I would say are probably there, or progressive dispensationalism just kind of more like Dallas Seminary today, like guys like Daryl Bach, stuff like that. Uh, But generally speaking, they're somewhere on that spectrum. There's not really any, to your point, is there anyone on the other side from Crossway? No, not really, not to my knowledge. We're we're pretty standard dispensational church. Yeah, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I would say... No. Oh, see, that's, that's what you think. Yeah, I would say we study the past to be changed in the present and to, yeah, understand what's going on in the future. Yeah. Yeah, if your study of eschatology does not change how you live in the present, you're not studying eschatology correctly, is what I would argue. Because, I mean, even you think about it, the book of Revelation, which I would argue most of Revelation is still not to come. God still gave the early church Revelation, right? I'm talking about the book of Revelation, right? He gave it to them to change how those seven churches would live then, right? You see that? So if we study eschatology and we're like, oh, great, that's way in the future. I ain't got to worry about that. We're studying eschatology incorrectly, okay? All right. You guys are dismissed. I'm excited you're here. This is going to be a fun class.